This is not the way we thought the story of Joseph would go. You remember Joseph, the son of Jacob, the great-grandson of Abraham, beloved by his father, but hated by his brothers. You remember the coat, that amazing technicolor dream coat that his father lavished on him. His brothers hated him for it. Hated him because he was the favorite. Hated him so much that they faked his death and sold their little baby brother into slavery. Then they took that technicolor dream coat, the mantle of their father's favor, and soaked it in animal's blood and presented it to their father. Your favorite son is dead, they told him. And they planned their baby brother's funeral. Meanwhile, Joseph was very much alive, living as a slave in Egypt, in the house of a man named Potiphar. He was, again, the favorite. And Potiphar put him in charge of the entire estate. But then Potiphar's wife became jealous. And one day she came on to Joseph. Joseph fled, knowing that an affair with the boss's wife, well, that would be detrimental to his career. But Potiphar's wife could not stand the embarrassment. She told her husband that Joseph had attacked her, and Joseph was sent into prison. While in prison, Joseph reveals that he has a skill. He can interpret dreams, and one of his fellow prisoners has a dream one night, and Joseph tells him what it means. Years later, as chance or perhaps God would have it, that same man begins working side by side with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And one night Pharaoh has a bad dream, a terrifying dream, and he doesn't know what it means, so they summon Joseph. And while the rest is history, Joseph tells Pharaoh what the dream means. And Egypt will have seven years of abundance, Joseph says. More wealth and harvest than we will know what to do with, but that will be followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh, amazed at Joseph's gift, promotes Joseph from prisoner to second in command of all of Egypt and puts him in charge of preparing for the predicted famine. Now, years later, in the midst of that famine, everyone begins to flock to Egypt looking for food. Everyone, including Joseph's brothers. Now, Joseph tricks them at first. He couldn't let them get off scot-free. But soon, he reveals to them his identity. What you meant for evil, he says, God meant for good. And Joseph brings the entire family, including his father, reunited again as they live in Egypt under Joseph's care. And then, well, then we come to this story, the story that happens at the end of the book of Genesis. It's not one that I had even heard of until a few years ago. After this great tale of Joseph going from rags to riches, turning life's most impossible situations into opportunity, after Joseph sees God working around every corner of his life, turning fear into hope, we get this story. Now, Egypt is still in the midst of the severe famine. It's been going on for several years, but the storehouses of Egypt have enough. Joseph prepared well. But well, as they say, you can't let a good crisis go to waste. An economic crisis is an opportune time to solidify Pharaoh's power. People are desperate. They'll do anything for food. 
And that's exactly what happens. First, they spend all their money buying food from Pharaoh. And they come to Joseph and they say, our money is all gone. Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? And Joseph says, okay, I'll give you food, but give me your livestock first. So they give Joseph their livestock in exchange for food. And when the food is all gone, they come back and they say, well, we're out of food again, but we still have no money. And our livestock are, are yours. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord than our bodies and our lands. And listen to what they say. Shall we die, Joseph, before your eyes, both we and our lands? Why don't you buy us? Buy our land in exchange for food. We will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed that we may live and not die. And here's what Joseph should have said. Look, look, y'all, I got this, okay? I mean, God gave Pharaoh a dream. I interpreted it. We've planned for this. We've got ample food. There's enough to go around. Don't fear. God will be with you. That's what he should have said. But Joseph no longer works for God. Joseph works for Pharaoh. And Joseph, the one who had been saved out of slavery by God, the one who had been promoted into power to do good, accepts the people's offer and sells them seed in exchange for their souls. And the people become slaves, all of them. Well, except for the priests. Even Pharaoh needs a minister time and again to tell him that you're doing a good job, Pharaoh. So he buys off the priests. And the people lavish praise on Joseph. You have saved our lives, they say. May it please my Lord, we will be slaves to Pharaoh. And with an economic transaction, the people become slaves. Welcome to Scare City. In Scare City, there are no residents, only slaves. In Scare City, there is never enough Never enough money, never enough food, never enough time. In Scare City, Pharaoh is the mayor. And, the, and his lie is the operating principle. There is not enough, so grab all you can. Walter Brueggemann tells the story of Martin Niemöller, the German pastor who heroically opposed Adolf Hitler later in life. But when he was a young man, he was a part of a delegation of leaders of the German Evangelical Lutheran Church. And they had a gathering, and Hitler was the speaker in 1933. Niemöller stood at the back of that gathering and looked and listened. He didn't say a thing. And when he went home, his wife asked what he had learned that day. And he replied, well, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. You see, Pharaoh has a lot of names. Sometimes we call him Hitler or bin Laden, sometimes Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Often it's Wall Street or Dow Jones or Washington or Madison Avenue. All these towers of power make up the core of scarcity, and they are terribly frightened powers who are convinced that there is not enough good things in this world to go around, so they must do all that they can to have all that they can gather. And we, well, we have bought into their lie. We've moved into scarcity. We are a people of great riches living in a land of plenty. 
And yet we never have enough. It doesn't matter if we have more than we will ever need. We still need more. And panic sets in if there's ever a threat to what we have. Then we show up in church and we sing, Great is your faithfulness, O God. All I've needed, your hand has provided. And we live torn between these two stories, between that story of God's abundance and the story that comes from scarcity. But too often it seems scarcity wins the day. After all, we like to build churches in scarcity too, right? In the middle where fear instead of faith motivates our actions because, well, giving is down, we say. Attendance is not what it used to be. Things are not how they should be. And if we change, people will be mad. And then, well, then they may not come. So we cut costs and we cut corners. We squelch the new and the experimental. We take no risk in our faith. We just keep things running smoothly. Don't rock the boat. Famine is no time to follow the Spirit. But there is another story woven throughout Scripture, a story of God's abundance, a story that begins, well, in the beginning. In Genesis 1, there God creates everything that there is and says it is good. It is enough. It is very good. But by the end of Genesis, Pharaoh begins spreading the lie there is not enough. So who do we believe? Which story do we live by? If you're like me, you read the Bible and you say amen, but keep looking out the corner of your eye as you watch the status of the markets. If you're like me, you think the whole world will fall apart if the other guy wins the election. If you're like me, you give, but you wonder if you've given too generously. If you're like me, you want to trust and let go and follow the spirit, and yet you're scared, scared of what others may say, scared of the consequences, scared that your faithfulness will be rewarded by suffering. If you're like me, you celebrate Thanksgiving, and then moments later go and buy more than you could ever want, need, or afford. If you're like me, you thank God for good gifts and then stand in front of your pantry and say, there's nothing to eat. If you're like me, you constantly worry that that battery on your cell phone will not be enough and it will soon die and you'll be left disconnected from the whole world. And am I the only one who goes to Target the day after getting paid knowing there's money in the bank and yet when checking out and that debit card machine lags for just a moment... And you just know all your money is gone. I don't know where it went, but it's gone. It's not there. What happened? And just before you panic, the screen says approved. And you enter into God's abundance again. If you're like me, you teeter on the edge of these two worlds, standing right in the middle, knee deep in the Jordan River with one foot in the wilderness and one foot in God's promised land, one foot in God's abundance but still holding on to scarcity. I know I'm not the only one. We are afraid. We're afraid of rejection, afraid of failure, of irrelevance, afraid that the ones we love the most will leave us alone, afraid that all that we have will be ripped from us, afraid that the other will take what we need to live, will take our jobs, will take our safety, will take our power, will take our church. Scarcity is a terrifying place. But the good news is it is an illusion. It's all made up 
by Pharaoh. A lie crafted from the beginning, from the end of Genesis, from Genesis 47 until now it's been told and we've believed it. But the future of our church, of our world, of our very lives depends on which story we live by. Who will we believe? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, if God is for us, who can stand against us? For I am convinced, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor pharaohs, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the gospel. That is the truth. All we have, all that we are, all that we ever will be begins and ends with God. All our lives are gifts from God, too precious to sell into slavery of fear. So what are you afraid of? If you haven't already, write it down on that post-it note. Give it a name. Cancer, death, irrelevance. A loved one's death, afraid that there's not enough time, afraid that they won't love me, (coughs) afraid that the pain will never go away. What is the name of your fear? Write it down and let go. Trust in God's abundant love. Hear God singing over you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I have called you each by name. Come and follow me. I will bring you home. I love you. And you are mine. Amen.